0: Speaking of the greatness of our God, um, we have uh, some remarkable um, things to praise the Lord for, and, um, and some of that is in our midst this morning. I just want to uh, make sure that you're aware, as a church, that we've been praying um, for a long time for uh, Kim Austin, her husband Dave, uh, and, uh, and they are here this morning. And uh, yeah. we That is uh, something to celebrate for sure. And um, continue to pray. I know the road still remains in front of you. Uh, continue to pray for you both. Uh, we praise our good God for his mercy to us in many, many ways. And um, we have his holy word, which reveals to us his absolute greatness. And we have a a passage in front of of us this morning in Exodus chapter 25. I want you to turn there, if you will. It is a a passage that could just be mistaken for a dry description of some furniture. But in reality, this is a, a description of the holiness of our God. This is the description of the Ark of the Covenant, one of the most famous pieces of furniture in all of the world. Um, and we get to take time this morning to look at this amazing text. Exodus chapter 25, beginning in verse 10. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside shall you overlay it and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark, they shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you, You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work. Shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat? Make one cherub on one end and one cherub on the other end of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, we ask you that you would take your holy word and teach us about your holiness this morning. Make us to understand perhaps to a greater degree than we have ever understood before. Your majesty, your holiness, your grace, your justice, make us to know you better. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Of course, the Ark of the Covenant is a piece of furniture that should be familiar to believers, but it's also something that has grabbed Uh, the secular world as well, having its influence in pop culture to do some popular films. Uh, It is a kind of an emblem of something mysterious, something valuable, and something that has disappeared. Uh, There is a story written by a man named Richard Halliburton who wrote in the 1930s. He was an adventure writer and an explorer, and he would uh, spin some tales that were kind of bigger than probably what he actually experienced. One of the stories that he tells is about going to Jerusalem. This, again, is the 1930s, and uh, he goes to Jerusalem where there is the Dome of the Rock, the rock being the place where supposedly Abraham was to uh, offer his son Isaac, also the place where the temple was built, also the place where there is now the Dome of the Rock belonging to Muslims. And supposedly, underneath that rock are caverns and tunnels that were used to store some valuable things when the Babylonians came in 586 BC to plunder and destroy Jerusalem. And among the legends and lore, of the Ark of the Covenant is the conjecture that during that exploitation of Jerusalem, the Ark was taken along with other valuables and hidden in those caverns under the Temple Mount. Well, Richard Halliburton, one for adventure, apparently goes to Jerusalem and during some opportunity for exploration goes into the tunnels underneath the dome of the rock to try to explore for the legendary Ark of the Covenant. He brings along the material that he would need to do, some excavations. He only has a certain limited amount of time to do it in, and he digs for something like 16 hours to try to discover the Ark of the Covenant, hid it for ages and ages. And after his digging, do you know what he found? Nothing. Nothing. I don't even know if that story actually happened. But even if he had thought there actually was an ark there. He would have spent his time much better to dig into the treasure of God's word than to go on that treasure hunt in Jerusalem. The point of the Ark of the Covenant is not to try to find where it's been hidden, but to understand what it means. That is the true treasure for us this morning. And we have God's word open before us, and by his grace, we want to spend this time more like a a Bible study, more like a treasure hunt in his word to find what the significance of this piece of furniture is and what does it mean for us today. And here's what we'll discover, just to try to summarize it here, is that God, with this Ark of the Covenant, precisely planned to show his people the joining of his law and his mercy. Through the Ark of the Covenant, God precisely planned to show the joining of his law and his mercy. This giving of the instructions for the building of the Ark of the Covenant happens in the context of God giving to Moses and by Moses to Israel instructions for the whole of his dwelling place, the tabernacle, where he is going to manifest his presence on earth. So Moses is receiving these precise plans for God's dwelling place. And in chapter 25, verse 9, God sets the tone for these plans that he's giving. He says, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. That sets the tone for the next chapters of detailed and precise instruction about the furniture of the tabernacle and the Tent of the Tabernacle. Basically, God is telling Moses and his people as they are going to construct this tabernacle not to deviate from his plans because they are his plans. The Lord is very careful to point out these are not mere guidelines for how they are to make the tabernacle. They're not suggestions, but rather they are precise instructions There is no deviation or improvising allowed as they make this tabernacle, as they make this tent. They're not allowed to mix in their ideas, their designs, their improvements. It could not be that a builder of the tabernacle could say, hey, I've got a great idea to improve this ark right here. You could put a little window on it. You could see inside through it. No builder of the tabernacle should be able to look at the tabernacle after it's, after it's completed and say, hey, look, that doodad over there, that was my idea. All of it, from first to last, is from the Lord. Just as an architect carefully plans and every detail of the building that's going to be constructed to make sure that the building works for the purposes for which it is made, so too our great God, the grand architect, is building a building, and he wants it built to the T, to the detail of the blueprint that he's giving Moses on Mount Sinai. And he's doing this because these are plans for his dwelling place. It says in verse 8, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. This is going to be the the residence of God on earth. It is the place where he's going to manifest his presence among his people. God was not house hunting. He wasn't going around looking for what already exists to see what best suits him. He is going to have a freshly built and designed house in which he will dwell. He was having his own house built according to the plans that he drew up so that he may dwell among the people whom he has redeemed. Now Israel would know, as we ought to know as well, it's not as though God is homeless. It's not as though he doesn't have a place to dwell. The scripture says that heaven is his throne and earth is his footstool. And even before the earth and the heavens were made, God existed outside of time and space for all eternity. He has no need for a home. He's completely content without it, and so it shows that he is in his grace designing a place to manifest his holy presence among his people, not so much for his benefit, but as a revelation of his character to the people among whom he will dwell. And so the tabernacle has to reflect the kind of God that he is to remind the people of Israel the kind of king they now have dwelling in their midst. It was to be a dwelling place, therefore, that displays his holiness. Israel had entered into a covenant with God, by which they became his people, and he became their king in a very special way. And they need to understand the kind of king that they have now. He is not a stubborn, ruthless, human king, tantrum-prone like Pharaoh was. He is rather the God of the universe, the maker of heaven and earth, the one who defeated all the gods of Egypt as he led Israel out by his power. And he is the one who sustains all things and is working all things to the culmination of his plan. And he has displayed his power in the defeat of Egypt, He's also displayed his holiness by giving Israel the law at Mount Sinai. And his people need to know that this is a God whose righteousness overflows from him. And he demands out of his holiness that his people shall be holy as he is holy. And they will now have this home that exists in their midst that is supposed to be the place where God dwells and just by looking at it, they need to recognize that the God who is their king is powerful and is holy and expects his people to be holy. And so as God gives the instructions for this tabernacle, he is going to convey a meaning of what he is building through its structure, through its furniture that teaches the people about his absolute holiness. God is laying out every detail of this tabernacle. No wasted detail, no wasted information, all of it revealing his precision for the home in which he intends to dwell among his people. That doesn't mean that as we study this text that we should try to attribute to every peg some attribute of Christ that encourages us. But it rather means that we understand the whole of the tabernacle as he has designed it is precise and intentionally given to reveal something of his holiness. When you come to a building that's designed by a good architect, you can kind of stand there and marvel at its structure you look at it and you think, wow, that is a almost a work of art. I was just looking at some images of some of the um, more creative homes that have been built recently, and one of the, the homes had these windows that were kind of uh, slanted towards the south, and uh, you wonder, well, why did they do that? And it's very clear that the architect had thought carefully about this. They're trying to make a more energy-efficient home and wanted to capture more of the sun to shine in more directly into the home to heat it up. But you look at something like that and you just cause you to stop and kind of marvel and think, what a, what a grand structure. And as we look at the components of the Lord's house, we need to stop and marvel and wonder, what is God doing, and why has He done this? It's kind of notorious that the detailed description of the next few chapters of Exodus is, is almost tedious to read through. Lots of details. And yet we have to realize that the way God designed it was to picture to his people the kind of God He is, the altar. The laver, the court, the curtains, the veil, the incense, the bread, the priestly garments are all woven together to paint an elaborate picture of the God who is their king and the means by which his people relate to him. At the very center of that picture, of that structure, is a room, the Holy of Holies, an inner room that is blocked off by a veil that only one person can enter once a year, and inside of that room is only one piece of furniture, It is the very first piece of furniture that instruction is given for how to build. It is the Ark of the Covenant. The very fact that it is first shows something of its preeminence, and if we understand this piece, it will almost, in a sense, be a key to unlocking the significance of all the other pieces. We might still be wondering, why should we care about this? This is still a... A text that is nearly 3,500 years old, giving precise details of a piece of furniture to people in the Sinai wilderness. There's a couple more reasons why it's important that we look at this. First of all, as believers, as Christians, we hold that the Bible is the very Word of God. It is given by Him, breathed out by God and it reveals the mind of God. There is nothing more fascinating in the universe than the mind of the one who made the universe. The one who made mountains and oceans, tastes and smell, and in the very concept of tastes and colors and all that exists in the world. His mind ought to be infinitely fascinating to us. And so when this mind designs a building, we should think, what a marvelous building, because what a marvelous mind. Second reason why we would give our attention to this is that the scope of the Bible is to reveal to us not only the nature of God, But also the plan of this God to bring redemption into the world. Really from Genesis to Revelation, the scope of Scripture is to reveal that the God who is holy has made a plan and executed a plan by which he brings redemption to sinful mankind. And because the book of Exodus and the Ark of the Covenant falls within that storyline, we are to understand that this Ark in some way communicates to us the fulfillment or execution of that plan to bring redemption to mankind. And so as we spend the rest of our time looking at this Ark of the Covenant, we have to understand that it is revealing to us something critically important about the way that God interacts with people in this world. So we'll look at the, just the description of what this ark is and try to draw some instruction from it. It says in verse 10 that they shall make an ark of acacia wood. The word ark sounds like a fancy word. It kind of immediately elevates it to a strata that makes it important and significant because we don't use that word for really anything other than biblical things. But really the word that is used can also be used for coffin It is simply a word for a box, and that's what this is. That's what this is. It's a box. And you can tell just by the dimensions that it's a box because it gives the length and the height and the depth. And so it tells us that this is a box. It's a rectangular box given to us in cubit dimensions, which is about the span from your elbow to your fingers, about 18 to 20 inches. There's disagreement about what the precise measurement was. But we get the general idea of how big it was. It was about three and a half feet long, two and a quarter feet wide, and two and a quarter feet high. Not a huge box, but enough, big enough for its purposes. And not only was it to be made in that form, it was to be made out of acacia wood, a wood that was available to them in Sinai, a hard wood that would be resistant to pests. And then we understand that this box was to take on a, a different kind of life because of what is to overlay it. Pure gold is to be overlaid on the outside and on the inside. Pure gold, not just regular gold, but refined gold, purified gold, is to be overlaid on its outside and its inside. And then there are to be these gold-molded rings on its bottom corners or on its feet, It was likely elevated from the ground a little bit by feet, and then there's molded rings that are placed on that, and those rings are made out of gold. And then you have poles that are overlaid with gold, and they're inserted into the rings, and it says that they are not to be removed. They're to stay in there with the ark. So that's the structure. It's not too hard to understand. It's a box with feet and poles, and has gold overlaying it. Well, what's the significance what does the design mean? Well, I think it's very obvious to us that as soon as the gold comes into the, the scene, you understand that the most precious of metals being used here elevates the significance of this box. If you make a box that is covered in gold, you expect it to have some important significance. You don't just make a pretty box just to kind of stare at it. It's going to have some a really huge significance to it. And then we learn from the fact that there are those rings and those poles that this is a box that is to be mobile and also not to be touched directly. That's the point of those poles. If you were to walk in and see this arc and you see those poles on it, you would very quickly conclude, I shouldn't touch the arc, I should touch those poles if I want to move it. That's what it was supposed to communicate. Basically, do not touch. Those poles were to always be in there. And so that means do not ever touch. You get the idea that this could be a dangerous box. And the fact that they're always in there also indicates that it's ready to be moved. Again, it's mobile. And the ark was supposed to go with the people of Israel Where they went, and the people of Israel would bring it out to war with them on occasions, and it was to move with them as they broke camp and went ahead to the next camping spot. The fact that those poles were in there is extremely important. You probably know the story of Uzzah, 2 Samuel chapter 6. David is bringing the ark up to Jerusalem. And he's having this massive celebration. And the ark is sitting there on an ox cart being pulled by ox. And there's Uzzah going along with it. And the oxen stumble and the ark shakes. And Uzzah puts out his hands to stabilize the ark. And you remember what happens? Uzzah is struck dead. And if you were there and you knew this law, you would be tempted to say, Uzzah! what were you thinking? And he would say to David, David, what were you thinking? Those poles are always supposed to be in it, so you don't touch it. That's exactly why I said put the poles in before we left. That's the kind of reason those poles were there. And this, by the way, is why God said, do this, exactly according to the pattern that i give you you don't get to improvise you don't get to make different ways of transporting it when god says use poles it's dangerous not to follow god's instructions but still we have to wonder this is ultimately at this point in time as we study this just an empty box Why is it so significant? What's it for? Why is it so dangerous? Notice in verse 16, verse 21, two times, it tells us what this box is to have in it. Verse 16, and you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. Verse 21, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. In Exodus 31, verse 18, God has been speaking with Moses, and it says that he gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. The very tablets to be given by God to Moses that describe the terms of the covenant between God and Israel are to be placed in this box. This is hugely significant because this is the defining contract between God and his people. It is the stipulations that the people need to keep in order to remain in a relationship with God as their king. It is what God expects of them as their king, summed up in the Ten Commandments, placed in this valuable holy box, and then to be placed in the inner chamber of the tabernacle. That's why this box has the significance that it does, because it has the contract between God and his people in it. So one more feature of this box. It says in verse 11 that you shall make a molding of gold around it. And not much more detail is given there, but you can put the picture together that around the top edge of the box there was to be a lip. Because at this point the box is open, but we're going to see the box is going to be closed. And that lip is going to keep the lid from moving side to side, fore to aft, a place for the lid. And that's what comes next in this description, because now another component is described about how it is to be made. It's to be the mercy seat in verse 17 that is to be made. This mercy seat is elsewhere translated an atonement lid or a cover. You notice that there are three main features of this this thing. First of all, it says that it's to be made of pure gold. Second, it's to have the same dimensions of the ark except for its depth. And then there are to be these cherubim that are integrated into it. Again, the first feature is that it's going to be made of gold. Unlike the ark, which had a wood frame, this is to be solid gold, pure gold. And the second feature is that it has the same dimensions of the ark itself. And keep that in mind. We'll come back to that in a little bit. And then the third feature, are the cherubim. They are to be of one piece with the ark. Uh, they're to be of hammered gold. They're to be images. They're not real cherubim, although there are real cherubim. They're actual creatures that actually exist. And you can see them in Ezekiel 1 and Ezekiel 10 and Revelation 4. They're also called for, they're also called living creatures. And they have an amazing appearance to them, something quite stunning that if you see them, you just think, wow, that's weird. That's the kind of sense you get from Ezekiel. That's different. It describes them in Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 5, that from the midst of this bright flashing cloud came the likeness of four living creatures, and this was their appearance. They had a human likeness, But each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the sole of a calf's foot. And they sparkled like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands. It says in verse 10 of Ezekiel 1, As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side. The four had the face of an ox on the left side. And the four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces, Strange creatures. Sometimes people will say about some kind of chubby little baby, oh, isn't he a little cherub? (laughs) Well, if by that you mean this warrior-like creature with immense power who sits within the presence of God, then maybe you want to find a different description of that chubby baby. That's not a cherub. A cherub is what we've just seen in Ezekiel, and they are the ones mounted on the top of the ark, and on the ark they're to have their wings spread out covering the ark, and their faces are to be towards the other one, but down in reverence because of the position that they hold. And you will find that in the scriptures, the cherubim appear kind of in a couple ways, but really in maybe one primary way. You will find that they show up very early in the Bible, in Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve are exiled from the garden. And at Genesis 3:24, it says that he drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The Garden of Eden, in a sense, was the first dwelling place of God on the earth that he made. And after Adam and Eve sinned, they're exiled and they no longer have access to it. And now it's cherubim that guard re to that place of God's presence. They, these cherubim, appear in the book of Revelation. And there they are around the throne of God, declaring his praises. And here we have these cherubim of gold that are on this ark and we realize that they're not cherubim themselves they're just images of these cherubim which tells us that this whole structure is a pattern of something greater a shadow of something true because there are cherubim they really exist but here on the top of the ark they're just gold This mercy seat is so-called since the time of Martin Luther and William Tyndale. They're the ones who really first translated it that way as a mercy seat in the English and German translations. It's connected with Hebrews chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, where the tabernacle is being described by the author of Hebrews And in Hebrews 9, verse 4, describing that holy place in the tabernacle, it says that having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant, above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. The word there in, in Hebrews is hilasterion, a word meaning propitiation or atonement. In other words, this structure that is made is a place of propitiation, a place of atonement, propitiation being satisfaction of the wrath of God on the basis of atonement made for sins committed. The Hebrew word here in Exodus chapter 25 is keparet, which is connected to that word kippur which you may know as Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. That's the descriptive word of this thing that is made of pure gold, a keperet. And some would translate it in a helpful way to help us understand what it is as a propitiatory, a propitiatory. Again, this is referring to satisfaction of wrath on the basis of an atonement, an atoning sacrifice. That's what this thing is, this mercy seat. Solid gold reflecting its purity and its holiness. Cherub reflecting the the protection of the presence of God. And then the very name reflecting propitiation and atonement. Let's try to put this Together now. now, what's going on with this mercy seat and this ark? How does this fit together? What's the significance? Well, God tells Moses about this ark and this mercy seat in verse 22. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony... I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. The ark containing the tablets of the covenant is to be having that mercy seat placed on top of it. And from that position between the cherubim, God says, there I will meet with you. It is the very place where God is going to speak to Moses in an instructive way about how the people of Israel are to live, how they're to live out his law. It is a place of fellowship and instruction and communication. In Numbers chapter 7, verse 89, it says that when Moses went into the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, he heard the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the ark of the testimony from between the two cherubim, and it spoke to him. This then This Ark and Mercy Seat and the Holy of Holies, where God will meet with his people, is then the very throne of God the King. It is the very throne of God from which he will rule Israel through a mediator. The fact that this structure is a throne is indicated by the fact that it is to be in a particular enclosed-off room. It is in the Holy of Holies. There's no other furniture there. It is just this closed-off room with the ark and the mercy seat. It is a place where God says he is going to dwell and meet, and a king who meets with his people meets from his throne. That it has the cherubim who exist in God's heavenly throne room in Revelation chapter 4 surrounding him and constantly glorify, glorifying him instructs us that this is the throne of God on earth. One author describes the cherubim as throne attendants and guardians. And here on earth, God made a place where he would dwell. And as a king, he would have a throne room and he'd have the protectors of his throne room reflected in those cherubim. It's important to understand that in that room with that ark, that's all that is there. Above the mercy seat, there is nothing. There is no image. There is no other structure that was made. Other religions would create a carved image to put that carved image on the throne that they would imagine. But in the true religion, with our true God, who is glorious beyond all imagination, there is no way to reflect him in an image. And so above that mercy seat, there is nothing except for the presence of God. Of God. We know this is his throne because it's said as much in 2 Samuel chapter 6 as David is bringing the ark into Jerusalem, which we mentioned earlier in the scenario with Uzzah. It describes the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. In Psalm 80, verse 1, It says, give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. This is the very throne of God on earth. And you can picture the situation that's here. God dwelling on his throne between the cherubim on that mercy seat, And beneath his throne is a box that contains the terms of the covenant, his very law, which his people are expected to keep. A law which, by the way, is reflected of his holiness and his righteousness given to a people who are to be holy as he is holy. The presence of God, the law of God, and in between sits this mercy seat, created to the exact dimensions of the ark to fit on top of it as a perfectly sized lid over the law of God, upon which God's presence will dwell as if it was a throne and underneath it the law of God. We have in our home this container that is a uh, it holds tea bags for us. And it's made out of pewter and it's a lovely... Um, vase-like structure. And at the top is a kind of a lip. that's about that big of a, a round. And in that lip is this lid with a little handle. And when I use that little container, I, I always enjoy it because that lid is so perfectly fitted to that tea container that when you pull it out, you can feel just the slightest resistance against it because it's so perfectly fitted. And when you put it back in, you understand that if it goes out of whack, even a millimeter, it's that close, you will find more resistance and it'll be hard to get back in. Because it's made of pewter, that's happened a few times to us. We've dropped it and it kind of gets bent out of shape and it's hard to get back in until it reforms the exact shape of that opening. Here you have a box made to a very specific dimension in which is the law of God. And on top of that is the mercy seat made, again, to a very specific dimension, to the same dimension as the box that holds the law. And that lid is to sit right there on that box, not moving fore or after, to or fro. It is to be perfectly placed in that box as a lid, as a covering. And upon that covering dwells the presence of God, and he considers the structure as his throne. And you see now perhaps the meaning of this as this lid of mercy, a place where propitiation can be made, where atonement can be made, where God is satisfied in his wrath against his people and no longer needs to strike out against them. You realize perhaps something of the meaning of this structure. One author is helpful here. He says the cover was to be of the same dimensions as the ark itself, not just an indication of the skilled craftsmanship employed in its construction, but also to show that the full requirements of the law engraved on the stone tablets was completely covered by the efficacy of the atonement that was made. The intimate connection between the cover and the ark was also indicated by the use of the same material, pure gold, in their construction, God's holiness, as portrayed by the law he gave his people and his mercy as witnessed to by the atonement cover, are both equally part of the display of his character that he made central to the worship at the sanctuary. Do you get the picture? God's law, which is required of all of his people to keep sitting there in God's throne room. On top of that law is a mercy seat upon which atonement may be made. That perfectly covers the law. And above that, you have the very presence of God dwelling as his throne. Another author puts it this way, the ark, its cover, and the testimony are a single unity. The throne of the Lord rests on the foundation of the exact matching and mutuality of law and atonement. This is where God meets his people, and speaks. We find here God's law and God's mercy and his presence itself find unity and harmony right here. God, whose nature is basically righteous and whose nature is basically merciful, we find them joined together here in the very ark that is given. I want you to picture this for a moment. Imagine you're among the people of Israel. You've been given the law. You hear what is stated there. And you realize what this new king of yours expects of you. He expects you to keep all of the law all of the time. And not only that, but your God, who is your king, has decided to dwell amongst you. And his presence is going to be made known there. And his very throne room is going to contain his law, the stipulations of the covenant that you have entered. And his throne is going to inhabit above that law. And so you know that he is not going to forget what he requires of you because his very throne is right on top of the law that he gave you. And if you're a reasonable person, you begin to think, I can't do this. I have a king who destroyed the entire Egyptian army in a moment as my king. And he's told me how he wants me to live. And he dwells among the law that he gave. And there is no way that I can ever keep that law that he gave. And I know his power. And I know his holiness. And I know what he can do to people who rebel against him. That's the nature of God's throne room. Do you think you'll ever get access there? God instituted not just the box that holds his law, but he instituted the mercy seat. The place where he will dwell. The place that covers up the law completely. And the place where once a year, on the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, the high priest would take sacrificial blood and bring it into that room. And he'd go to that ark that is covered by the mercy seat. And he would take the blood and he'd sprinkle it on that mercy seat, reflecting that a sacrifice had been made, life for life, blood for life for the sin of the people that has been committed and now sprinkled on the very throne of God where he dwells that covers his law to show that the people now can be atoned for by the blood of a sacrifice. And that's the kind of king that Israel has. And that is the kind of throne room that God inhabits, a place of law and a place of mercy. This throne of God was so important to Israel that really the ark was supposed to have a, a premier place amongst the people. It was to go out among the people. They brought it out with them into battle. Again, a big show was made when David brought it to Jerusalem. A big show was made when Solomon put it into the temple that he built. This tab- or, or this ark That's such a huge theological significance to the Old Testament and then, do you know what happens to it? It Just kinda disappears. And no one knows where it is. Where is the ark now? Well, look with me at Jeremiah chapter three. Jeremiah is a book that is really anchored by the new covenant promise. That despite Israel's sin, God has a new covenant that he will make. And Jeremiah 3, verse 15, pictures that time when people will be regenerated and worship the Lord in truth. It says in Jeremiah 3, verse 15. And I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And when you have multiplied and been fruitful in the land in those days, declares the Lord, they shall no more say the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all nations shall gather to it, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem, and they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. God says there is a time when the ark will be forgotten, and there is really no need for it, because the ark again Was a shadow. Those weren't real cherubim. And the sacrifice brought in was just the blood of a bull or of a goat. And it had to be done repeatedly, year after year after year. Do you know what happened that obliterated the need for the ark? Jesus came. And when he came, it says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11, that when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. When Christ came, he didn't need to go to the Ark of the Covenant with gold cherub. He needed to go into the true throne room of God with his own blood, And there he made atonement for our sins once and finally, never needing repetition because he has accomplished it all. So don't go on any wild goose chases looking for the Ark of the Covenant. You don't need to if you have Christ. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that you have both revealed your nature in the law and all of your righteousness. And Lord, we confess that we fall short before your standard. Every day we fall short. But we praise you, Father, that in your grace and by your mercy, you completely cover your law. And we know that through Jesus Christ, who kept the law perfectly, that atonement has been made, has been brought to you, so that we might have a right relationship with you. Thank you, Father. We could not do this. We could not think this up. We marvel at your brilliance. We marvel at your mercy. And we praise you for your grace towards us in Christ. Help us to walk in the freedom that we have in him. Help us to walk in worship before you and to praise your name and to live as your people in holiness now, having been redeemed and regenerated by you.